Good morning, all. And morning to those of you online. Uh, We are delving into Psalm 66 today. And Dan led us in a responsive reading from the beginning of that psalm and a few dabs here and there through the middle. Um, Psalm 66 starts out, it's a fairly long psalm, it starts out with lots of praise, how good God is, how God has provided for us, how God rules the universe, how good God is, and just really soaking in that light and peace and wonderfulness. But we're going to jump in at verse 8 and work our way out through the end, because in verse 8 we run into one of those parts of a psalm or parts of scripture where we think, uh, what? And we tend to just bounce over that, you know? But we're gonna really dig into it because there's good stuff, as always, in the word of God. So I'm just gonna read you verse eight through the out of the end of the psalm. Praise our God, all peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. He has preserved our lives and kept our feet from slipping. For you, O God, tested us. You refined us like silver. You brought us into prison and laid burdens on our backs. You let people ride over our heads. We went through fire and water, but you brought us out to a place of abundance. I will come to your temple with burnt offerings and fulfill my vows to you, vows my lips promised and my mouth spoke when I was in trouble. I will sacrifice fat animals to you and an offering of rams. I will offer bulls and goats. Come and hear all you who fear God. Let me tell you what he's done for me. I cried out to him with my mouth. His praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But God surely has listened and has heard my prayer. Praise be to God who has not rejected my prayer or withheld his love from me. So we start with praise and we end with praise. And when a psalmist does that, that's the point, praise. You can rest secure in that. But there's that bumpy stuff in the middle that we need to look at. So verses eight through nine, praise God all people, let the sound of his praise be heard. He has preserved our lives and kept our feet from slipping. Phew, God is good, that was close, but God saved me. But then we bounce on to verses 10 through 12. For you, O God, tested us. You refined us like silver. You brought us into prison and laid burdens on our backs. You let people ride over our heads. So hold on a second. God caused the trouble. He brought us into prison and laid burdens on our backs and let people ride over our heads. Is God capricious or malicious or careless? What's going on here? Why is he doing this? Is the psalmist stupid? Why is he thanking God for causing trouble saving him from trouble that God caused. What's going on here? Well, we have to trust that God's word is reliable. (laughs) So how does God preserve our feet from slipping? He does it by refining us, by growing our roots down deep into him. And God uses all the wonderfulness of his bounty and his graciousness and his provision to keep our feet from slipping by teaching us to trust and take joy in life and uh, keep our chins up and, you know, I mean, all the good stuff that good stuff brings, God has brought to us. But apparently, there's good stuff to be had in the bad stuff. And that's what we're going to look at. In Matthew verse 13, 
Jesus tells the parable of the sower. Remember, he talks about how the sower throws seed out willy-nilly and some of it lands on the rocks and dries up and the bird eats it and some of it lands in the weeds and it gets choked out and some of it lands on shallow soil and it grows up real fast but that doesn't have any roots so when the sun beats down on it, it dies and some of it throws in good soil and it grows up and, and bears a, a harvest. So the seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and receives it with joy, but since they have no roots, they only last a short time. When trouble or persecution comes, they quickly fall away. Now, have any of us besides me ever kind of had one of those moments in life where you think, I, I think my roots are too shallow. I worry that if trouble comes, I won't be able to hold on to my faith. I won't be able to keep trusting God. Has that ever happened to any of you besides me? Yeah, so it's something we need to take seriously. Here's the point. God uses everything to bring us to maturity in Christ. He uses the good stuff. He uses the hard stuff. Suffering is one of the all things that God uses. But how can God use trouble to bring us good? Well, here's three ways off the top of my head. Think about a surgeon who is dealing with a superous wound, a wound that has gone bad. The surgeon has to cut away all the dead flesh so that he or she can suture everything back together and it'll be good healthy flesh touching good healthy flesh and the wound can heal, right? Causing the surgeon to cut away dead flesh this is a, kind of an analogy for God removing the lies that we believe that cause us deadness. When we believe things like, I'm all alone in the world, and I'm not safe, I can't trust anybody, uh, God's not there for me, he's there for everybody else, but I didn't get in line, you know, all those lies, you know, the ones that poison us. Okay, those need to be cut away. God needs us sometimes to use trouble to convince us that those lies are poisoning our lives. And we need to believe the truth, which is that God is good, that God holds us in the palm of his hand, that trouble cannot harm us, it can only hurt, it can only sting, it can't actually destroy anything. Trouble sometimes is what God has to use to prune that dead lies away from us. Much easier if we can believe the truth from the good stuff, but sometimes we just can't, you know? Um, my mom, frequently, she, she liked to garden stuff. Here's a third, a second way that, that God uses trouble. Mom would garden stuff, and if she was dealing with a plant that was just kind of standing there, it wasn't growing, it wasn't dying, it wasn't bearing fruit, it wasn't, it just, eh, you know, being a plant. And she would cut that plant practically down to nothing. Prune it hard, she said. And I'm like, Mom, oh! And she said, no, you put the fear of God into it and it'll decide, <laughs> is it gonna live or is it gonna die? <laughs> you know, and sometimes we go through life kind of in it like a zombie, you know? We, we, we forget to value the things we value. We spend time with our family, but we don't spend time with our family. We spend time with our family watching TV. You know what I mean? You know, we, we put ourselves in wonderful situations, but we don't, have joy. We read the verses about, Jesus says, streams of living water are going to flow from your heart. And we think to ourselves, yeah, except 
they're not. I'm not really flowing with living water. And it's not that there's anything necessarily wrong with me, as it is that I'm just going through life like a zombie. Am I going to fall into my grave at the end of my life half asleep already? Do I lie awake at night and dare to pray that God will bring me to life? Sometimes God can use trouble to purify me of deadness and futility. Sometimes trouble will cause you to sit up and say, I choose life. I'm going to fight for what's good. I need the kingdom of God. I'm tired of just trudging along through the kingdom of the world. A third way that God can use trouble to bring us into the fullness of what he has for us in Christ is by the way that a refiner of precious metals burns away dross out of uh, metal ore. You know, when you, when you dig up ore for silver or gold, you have to beat it to smithereens, and then you have to put it in the fire and melt it. And the reason you're doing that is so the impurities can float to the surface. Jamie, let's have graphic number one. Yeah, you see those, that sort of dark crud on the top of the molten metal? That's not gold. <laughs> and that has to be scraped off. And then what's left needs to be heated again so that more of the not gold will float up to the top and can be scraped off again. And the refiner keeps doing that and doing that and doing that over and over and over until he gets to pure gold. And God is constantly bringing us into hard situations that will bring our impurities to the surface. Um, C.S. Lewis has a great thing. He says, if, there, if you've got rats in your cellar, you're not going to discover them by turning on the lights and making a whole lot of noise and going down there and looking for rats. You're going to discover them when you fall down the cellar steps in the dark and <laughs> the rats are like, wow, you know. <laughs> Sometimes it takes trouble to bring our, our lies that we believe and our sins that we hang on to and our crappy attitudes to the surface where we can see them. You know, when we get surprised into behavior that we're ashamed of and we have to say, oh, yeah, that's there. That needs to go. The lies that we believe that cause us to fear and the fear that drives us to be not good. The unrepentance that we cling to that causes harm to other people. You know, I'm going to hold on to this grudge and you're not going to make me stop. I'm going to get the stuff and I don't care if you don't get any at all. That stuff or the self-worship that we practice, you know, the ego stuff that pushes us away from God's goodness. All that needs to be brought to the surface where we have to face it. And sometimes trouble is the only thing we'll pay attention to. Sometimes terminal pain is the only thing that'll get our attention. So how does my lack of trust in God's goodness and my lack of virtue contribute to the trouble that I'm in? That's the question. And to gauge his progress, Jamie, let's have graphic number two. To gauge his progress in, in getting the impurities out of the gold or the silver, the refiner keeps doing it over and over until gradually the surface becomes reflective and clear and pure, and he can actually see his face in it. And that's where he knows that he's, he's achieved pureness, pure metal. You know, when suffering and goodness both have brought us to the point where we can reflect the spirit of God that's in us, 
and the world can actually see God, we're getting somewhere. We're almost getting to the point where when we get to heaven, we will like it there. <laughs> you know, because if I got to heaven now, I probably would not like it 100% because I'm going to be wanting to bring my baggage and God says, nope, no baggage. Does that make sense? Okay, so just a quick reminder. Um, I know I've, I've said this to you several times before. I'm going to say it again. Um, Graham Cook brings out the point that God has already dealt with our sinfulness. When Jesus died on the cross, that took care of the sinfulness in terms of making us holy. Okay? What we're dealing with now is our sinful habits. Okay? And our sinful habits need to be dealt with. So we're saved. We're still got dirt on our feet, as Jesus said. Okay, that's what we're dealing with here. So, again, how does God keep our feet from slipping and save our lives by putting us through various trials? Well, he purifies us from our habitual reliance on uh, our flesh, that is, the world's way of doing things. I, I talk about being, you know, a chimp with clothes on, and that's sort of my shorthand way for the world's way of doing things. Just what's normal and natural according to the way we understand life. You hit me, I hit you back. Uh, I, I need something, I'm going to take it. You know, just the whole way that normal people normally live. And trouble, especially bad trouble, can get us into the corner where we cry out for, this is not good enough, God. I need you. I remember when I was uh, uh, teaching a counseling, group counseling at the seminary, and one of my students, all, <laughs> we were in this group class, and she just all of a sudden one day she just pounded her desk and she goes, I am so sick of doing church. I want the life of Christ. And that's, I don't know what trouble she was in, but I know she was facing some, some trouble, and it had got her to the point of normal isn't good enough. I need God. Right? You ever been there? Yeah, sometimes trouble is what it takes. So there's many reasons for suffering. Sometimes it's my fault. Sometimes it's somebody else's fault. Sometimes it's Satan's fault. Sometimes it's the earthquake's fault. <laughs> but God uses it all to purify me if I submit it to him. If I just go through suffering, to go through suffering, I'm going to come out either stronger or dead. And by stronger, I mean more set in my ways. If I go through it with God, I can come out purified. I can come out in a different place. I, it, you may be wondering why I'm preaching something like this on Mother's Day. What does this have to do with Mother's Day? And it suddenly occurred to me, I was asking God that this morning, and it was sort of like, well, I know that my mom suffered some with me. I'm pretty sure she prayed more than once, oh God, how long? Uh, you know. <laughs> so there's Mother's Day for you. There you go. All right. But when we pray for a virtue, when we say, you know, Lord, I, uh, you've shown me that my temper is too mean, or you've shown me that I am too full of greed, or you've shown me, Lord, that I am always given to fear, take that away from me, 
God's way of taking it away frequently is to put us in situations where we have to let go of it. You know, he doesn't just hit us on the head with a wand and say, boop, there it's gone. No, he puts us through the situation where that problem, that vice, that stubborn failing boils to the surface and we get a chance to work on letting it go. There was a monk named Philip Neri way back in the Middle Ages and he was a mean man. He was very easily angered, uh, inclined to hold a grudge, and so he was constantly fighting with his brothers in the monastery and he knew that this was a problem. And he fell on his knees before the statue of Christ in the, in the sanctuary and he was begging, Lord, take this away from me. I, I don't want to be this angry person all the time. Take it away from me. And he got up from his prayers and he was wandering down the hallway and he came across one of his brothers who had always been a consolation and a friend to him. And he spoke to the brother and the brother answered him very sharply. You know, and it was like, whoa. And he went on his way and he went to another brother who had always been friendly and nice and that brother kind of snapped at him. And Philip went back into the sanctuary and knelt down before the cross and he said, Lord, I prayed for you to take this away. What, what, what's going on? What, what's happening? And God said, I'm taking it away by giving you many opportunities to practice. Practice the kindness and the patience that you want to have. So that's a use for suffering. As we trust God to use our pain to purify our hearts, our character will come forth as gold. And Job himself, you know, he, boy, he was acquainted with suffering, right? He says, I know, he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. So in James, the apostle James says, and we're very familiar with this, consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. To be mature and complete and not lack anything is to show the fruit of the Holy Spirit in you, clearly. In order for the Holy Spirit to be seen, everything that is unholy has to be removed. Let's go to graphic three, Jamie. Michelangelo was asked, how did you sculpt this amazing sculpture of David? How did you do it? And Michelangelo, I guess, was having a crabby day or something, but he answered very shortly. He said, I, I just cut away everything that didn't look like David. <laughs> but that's kind of what God is up to. He has designed each and every one of us to be this amazing masterpiece. And he's using life to cut away from us everything that doesn't look like what he created us to be. And sometimes he uses the good stuff, and sometimes he uses the chisel. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, let's go on to the rest of verse 12. We went through fire and water, the psalmist says. And this is really interesting. We have to choose the way we experience our suffering and how we respond to it. Water in the Bible can symbolize either repentance and death and the flood and chaos and all the things that water can be when you're <laughs> trying to get away from water, but it can also symbolize eternal life and the Holy Spirit flowing through us, you know, the springs in the desert. We can choose 
how we respond to our suffering. Am I going to say it's, it's death and destruction and just go down that path? Or am I going to say this is leading me into eternal life and the Holy Spirit and my ability to finally be able to pour out goodness onto the world around me? I get to choose. And whichever way I choose, if I choose away from God, I'll wind up going away from God. If I choose towards God, he'll suck me towards him. Fire is the same way. Fire is often used in scripture to symbolize destruction. God is frequently referred to as our God as a consuming fire. What does he consume? Dead stuff. Evil stuff. Stuff that is begging to be burned. Right? But fire is also a symbol, again, of eternal life and holiness and the sacred altar. Does that make sense? We get to choose. How are we going to respond? Are we going to be refined and purified or burned up? The title of one of my favorite books was Why Not Be All Fire? (laughs) You know, why not just burst into holy flames? I wish. But if we consistently refuse to choose life when we're faced with these trials, we will eventually become hardened into our choice. You remember when when God God says, I've I've hardened Pharaoh's heart? And you think, when I first read that, that's not fair. You know, how can he do good if you've hardened his heart? What that's saying is Pharaoh has repeatedly and stubbornly and over and over chosen to turn away. His heart has become hard because that's what happens to a human heart that consistently refuses life. It dies. It becomes fossilized. So let's look at the rest of verse 12. Verse 12 is a good verse. I had to cut it up into a lot of pieces. But you've brought us out to a place of abundance. The trials are over, and now we stand in a place of abundance. We're in the still waters and the green pastures, and we've gone through the valley of the shadow of death, and that's Psalm 23, of course, but same difference. Okay. When we read James above, when he's saying, you know, let perseverance produce its work, and and you'll be finished and complete and lack nothing, here's the rest of that verse from James. He says, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. The place of abundance is not possible without the preceding trials. If we've never been through the rocky dark valley, when we get to the smooth pasture, we're not even gonna know that we're in a good place. It takes the trial. And the reward for getting through the trial with God and being purified is that abundance of life, of having God flow through you into the world. I mean, that's a fabulous feeling. And the psalmist moves from there into great gratitude. In verses 13 to 17, he says, I will come to your temple with burnt offerings. And a burnt offering is a serious offering. This is a for real offering. It's not just a, you know, here's my dime in the collection plate. I will come to your temple with burnt offerings. I will fulfill my vows to you. 
the vows that my mouth promised and my lips spoke when I was in trouble. I will sacrifice fat animals to you and an offering of rams. I will offer bulls and goats. These are valuable animals, okay? Come and hear, all of you who fear God. Let me tell you what he's done for me. I cried out to him with my mouth, and my praise was on my tongue. His praise was on my tongue. This is heartfelt sincerity, real thanksgiving, and it costs something. These, like I say, these are important animals. You know, he's not offering rabbits and sparrows. It's, this is big stuff. So what do we promise to God when we're being tested? You know, what, what is our atheist in a foxhole promise that, oh God, if you'll save me, I'll live a better life? Be a kinder person? Trust you with my stuff? What are the promises? Why is it difficult to keep my vows after the trial is over? What's that about? When God takes the heat off, why is it so easy to just forget that I ever made a vow and just float along my way? Well, this is where the psalmist is doing the totally right thing. When we take big steps to keep our vow, I'm guessing that one of the vows that this psalmist made in trouble was, oh Lord, save my life and I'll sacrifice a bunch of my valuable animals. You know, so one of the things that we can do to help us keep our vows is to start immediately keeping our vows as soon as we can, even before the trouble is really over. Take action. And we need to remember, come and let me tell you what God has done. We need to be sharing and talking about what God has done with us. And we need to rest hard on praising God, keeping our attention focused on God, because the wor world will try to seep back in and our chimp selves will try to, you know, raise their heads again. And pretty soon we'll be back where we started. We have to hang on to God with praise and remembrance and action. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Okay, verse 18. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Part of my trial is that my flesh does not want to be like Jesus. I mean, let's face it. Our normal, natural, native self doesn't really want to be like Jesus. We don't want to let go of our ego and our unbelief. You know, think about how stupid and selfish people can be, and we're like that too. It's easy. It's fun sometimes. I mean, face it, being, being angry and stupid and selfish, it's big media, right? It's fun to watch, fun to be. It's hard to actually choose to be like Jesus and to give our lives for the good of our neighbors. And trust God. Paul in Romans says, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live according to the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. Again, we have to choose. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law and it cannot submit to God's law. 
those who remain in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. So we have to continue to choose away from our chimp selves and into the kingdom, into the life of God. That's the elemental aspect of who we are is our choices, our ability to make choices, and God will not tamper with that. He insists on us making choices. Even if we make a wrong choice, we gotta choose. Even to, cho even to choose to not choose is a choice, right? Okay, so do I choose towards God or towards myself? My flesh will never choose God. My flesh is always gonna veer towards comfort and ego and pride and my version of safety and all that stuff. And I'll die a chimp with clothes on. So I have to choose the spirit. I have to choose to respond to the spirit of God moving inside me. The psalmist has chosen towards God. So in verse 19 and 20, he says, but God has surely listened and heard my prayer. Praise be to God who has not rejected my prayer or withheld his love from me. In 1 Peter, Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's come among you, which comes for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But instead, to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. We're gonna take a minute to do a little meditation and we're gonna ask God to inspire you with a picture in your imagination of just one little aspect of yourself and what will that be like? That little piece of you, what will it be like when God's glory is fully revealed in that peace. Do you ever fantasize about what it would be like when God has completely purified you and you reflect the image of Jesus fully the way only you could possibly do? So close your eyes for a moment and get comfortable. Lord, we thank you so much for your activity in our lives. We surrender our imagination to you for just this little exercise. Please select one aspect of our lives, Lord. Give us a picture of what we can be like when you have pulled the dross and the slag off of that aspect of our lives and your face can be purely and cleanly and sharply seen in that place, glowing with mirror-like splendor. We ask that you would look into the molten gold that you are currently purifying and show us your reflection there. Thank you, Lord. Help us to take action this afternoon towards what you've shown us. Amen. The revelation of his glory, when it's revealed in us, we will rejoice with exultation. And we're gonna close. Lord, 
thank you for what you've shown us. Thank you for inspiring us to take action and giving us an idea of the action that we can take. Thank you that you are not done with us until you're done with us. When your face shines, help us to continue to choose towards you, Lord. Help us to surrender any hardship in our lives to your use for your glory. Amen.